welcome to another episode of Toho Yaro, a monthly movie club podcast. Uh, I'm the host this month, Joey Weiser, and with me, as always, is Scott Dryman. Hey, Scott. Hey, Joey. Hey, everybody. And Alex Kazanis. Hi, Alex. Hey, Joey. Hey, listeners. <laughs> Uh, this month we are covering uh, Seijun Suzuki's Tokyo Drifter from 1966. <laughs> This is a movie that I believe none of us had seen before, correct? Uh, Correct. Yeah, this is exciting for me. Um, This is my first time hosting an episode uh, with a movie that I've never seen before. I had decided to cover this because uh, Suzuki recently passed away um, in February uh, this year, February 13th, at the healthy age of 93. So that's, you know, not too bad. <laughs> um, up until this point, I had only seen one of his films, um, Voice Without a Shadow, which is on the Nikatsu Diamond Guys Volume 1 set from Arrow Video. And that's okay. That's an okay movie. It's like a noir uh, movie that's pretty interesting in the first half and then kind of becomes a procedural in the second half that's not as gripping. Um, and uh, so I really loved this opportunity to finally see one of Suzuki's more signature films. Um, I must admit that I had some a little bit of trouble following it occasionally due to some of the strange editing and, and framing. Um, oh, yeah. So (laughs) something that I hadn't done before uh, for this movie, I actually watched it twice to prepare for this episode and um, watching it closer uh, a second time gave me a lot of uh, clarification. So it sounds like you had a semi similar experience, Alex. Yeah, it probably would have helped to watch it a second time, but I'll be honest, I didn't really care to watch it a second time after after the first time. Uh, Yeah, I... (laughs) Also, I just watched it like the other night. I wouldn't have had time to watch it a second time. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I also watched it twice, but I watch most of our movies twice because of the way I take notes. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, definitely. The second rewatch, there were things the first time I was like, what the hell is happening here? And second time, I'm like, well, I guess this makes a little more sense at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. that'll happen with any movie, I think. Like Zardoz, for example. I've seen Zardoz more than... <laughs> Anybody should see Zardoz, uh, but after the second or third time, you act, the movie actually makes sense. Uh, not something I'd ever thought I would say about that movie. Well, uh, I, I think, yeah, and we'll touch on some of these bits that were maybe a little confusing or, or uh, whatever, and, and uh, help me out here if I'm ever struggling and you think you've got the answer. <laughs> but um, uh, Seijin Suzuki um, had worked mostly for Nikatsu. Uh, he made a about 40 films for them uh, during this kind of in the 60s uh, leading up to this time period, probably 50s and 60s. Um, Suzuki's unique style of films was uh, had clashed with the studio and he was fired after making uh, Branded to Kill in 1967, just a year after this. And after suing the studio over this, he ended up being blacklisted for the next 10 years and didn't make uh, films until he returned in the 80s uh, with independent filmmaking and 
made three films that uh, were met with uh, great critical acclaim. So uh, he has an, an interesting career. Uh, Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill are probably his best known films in the West. Um, other films include Youth of the Beast, Gate of Flesh, um, and Fighting Elegy from the Nikatsu time period. And uh, from that 80s independent time period, he directed a loop on the third movie, Legend of the Gold of Babylon, um, which is one that I don't recall if I've seen or not. I've kind of seen a bunch of those specials and movies, and they kind of blend together in my head <laughs> a little bit. Um, as far as notable actors... Uh, Tetsuya Watari is uh, our main actor here, playing Tetsu the Phoenix, uh, and this was at the beginning of his career. He went on to act in several movies, including Graveyard of Honor and Yakuza Graveyard uh, from Kinji Fukusaku, and uh, Takeshi Kitano's brother, which is interesting. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Chieko Matsubara, who plays Chiharu, the uh, singer that he's in a relationship with, um, was spotted in a beauty contest sponsored by Nikatsu and uh, went on to star in over 100 films for them, including Seijun Suzuki's Kanto Wanderer. Um, I always think it's interesting seeing all these people uh, that continue to work with the same directors and stuff. Uh, I don't think, I think in this cir circumstance, it just has more to do with the fact that um, Nikatsu had a stable of stars and directors that they would just sort of like <laughs> shake up in a bottle and... and 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 put into different uh projects together um yeah japan and, had a uh, had a similar kind of studio system to the u.s i think longer than the u.s actually did where if you were you would just have a kind of longer term contract with a single film studio so you'd work with a lot of the same people over and over again mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, before we move on i'd like to go back to tetsuya watari and the fact sure. that this was real early in his career uh i read that because he was such a new actor that he would freeze up a lot on set while filming. So they had to resort to things like poking him with a broom from off camera to get him to actually come out of it and say his lines. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. In the, there's an interview with Suzuki um, in the Criterion set that, that he is throwing some serious shade at Watari uh, telling stories like that about him and about how, um, in recording the theme song, uh, they just recorded each line over and over again and just piecemealed it together um, <laughs> and stuff. So uh, I don't know. It seems like uh, Nikatsu kind of wanted to prop him up as one of their stars, and Suzuki wasn't really feeling it too much. <laughs> um, moving on, uh, Hideaki Nitani, who plays shooting star Kenji, uh, is an interesting guy. He was uh, fluent in English and worked as an English language broadcaster before becoming an actor. And um, he was part of Nikatsu's Diamond line of stars, uh, which is what that Nik uh, Nikatsu Diamond guy's uh, sets are named after. And these are stars that uh, the studio would build films around uh, alongside Akira Kobayashi and Joe Shishido. Um, he was nicknamed Dump Truck Guy, uh, because of his handsome, tough guy roles. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a pretty funny nickname, I think. Uh, it, in, it's literally the English words dump guy, dumpu guy, <laughs> uh, and it does not sound very flattering to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... Um, in, uh, so he's in a lot of Nikatsu movies from this time period, including uh, Seijin Suzuki's Voice Without a Shadow and Massacre Gun, Retaliation, 
Uh, he's also the star of a TV series called Mighty Jack, that uh, a couple episodes of which were compiled into a film by Sandy Frank and shown as an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, so if anybody remembers Mighty Jack, that was our man, shooting star Kenji. <laughs> um, the last actor I wanted to mention was Eiji Go, who uh, plays Tanaka, uh, one of the, uh, the sort of bad guy gangsters and uh, he was in 1975's uh, Bullet Train, which is a movie that uh, is about a fast train that is hijacked by terrorists, and there's a bomb in it, and if it goes under a certain speed, it will explode, which might sound familiar, uh, like the movie Speed in America. And um, that he was also in Graveyard of Honor, Youth of the Beast, and he's actually uh, Joshi Shido's brother, which I thought was interesting. Yoshishido, uh, well-known for being in that movie that got uh, Suzuki fired, uh, and is a really interesting actor that we will, I'm sure, cover eventually in the future. Um, so moving on to the movie itself, uh, it begins with a black-and-white scene, and this scene is like, the film quality is real rough. It's like blown <laughs> out, kind of bad-looking. <laughs> um our, our hero, uh, Phoenix Tetsu, is called down to the train yard where he's beaten up by a gang led, led by a man named Utsuka. And Tetsu was a member of a gang led by a, another man named Kurata, but Kurata and his gang have recently gone legit. Uh, Utsuka's gang is trying to push Tetsu to see if he will fight back, and Otsuka says that uh, at any minute he's going to fly off the handle, and we get this brief color scene that's just like a few seconds long of Tetsu against a black background wearing this kind of like bright yellow suit and firing a gun with this bright pink gunshot. It's a, it's, it's very cool looking, uh, and kind of jarring. Um, and, uh, however, back in the real world, uh, uh, the that's black and what they use for the, the cover of the current criterion DVD, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the series sort of, of shots from that looks great. Yeah. Cause there's, he's kind of like shoots in a few different directions. And so they, uh, they compiled that into a single image for the Criterion release. And yeah, it looks real good. Um, so Tetsu doesn't, in fact, fight back, and Otsuka Gang leaves him kind of to rot <laughs> on the ground. And uh, uh, he looks up and looks at something. This is a, was kind of hard for me to decipher. I think it's a smashed gun. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's a gun. Uh, it's just been colored mm -hmm. in technical, you know, yeah. in, on the film to look like... You know, I guess to stand out, but it looks more like a toy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's bright red uh, against this black and white background. And honestly, even upon that second rewatch, I had to pause it and rewind it and be like, "Okay, I didn't get this the first time. What is this thing?" <laughs> and look at it real close because that that effect of coloring a single uh, item in a black and white film is really cool, but it just kind of like didn't quite work for this part. I think. No, it's it it's definitely the... something that uh, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't work. It, it might have worked better on paper, mm -hmm. or or rather, this is something that uh, maybe at the time wasn't you know technologically that uh, easy to do. Yeah, for sure. Which uh, that everything in that those scenes is so difficult to read, and I have to wonder if they just like botched the filming of the black and white, or if that blown out look was an actual choice that they made yeah i have some yeah there's i think uh, after we go through the summary i'm going to mention a little bit about stuff that happened with the budget and stuff that really like i think explains a lot of these sort of like what is the deal with this uh but okay um 
Yeah, he and so anyway, so Tetsu says, like, I'll ask you one more time not to make me mad. You know, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And uh, it cuts to credits, and now now in glorious full color as the Tokyo Drifter song plays. And uh, so now, uh, for the rest of the film, we're going to be in color. And, um, you know, for the most part, kind of bright color. There's some naturalistic uh, scenes outside and stuff, but uh, these scenes, like, in clubs and stuff are really bright and very interesting looking. Um, so we're introduced to our characters, uh, some of them reintroduced. There's Otsuka and his gang, who are watching over Karata's gang's movements. Karata has gone legit, as I mentioned, and um, is going into real estate. <clears throat> um, he's trying to make a deal to buy a building, but doesn't have enough money. Uh, this is overheard by the manga-loving secretary, uh, Mutsuko, who um, Scott had pointed out is reading an issue of a manga magazine with uh, Obake no Kyutaro. <clears throat> Do you know uh, much about him, Scott, that you want to say? <laughs> uh, not especially. I, I only recognized it because the, uh, I knew about an NES game that got ported over featuring him. Ah, okay. But uh, yeah, I don't know that much about the series. Yeah, Is he's. That... I think he's created by the, the Doraemon creators, and he's like a little ghost with big puppy lips. Ah, I was uh, going to ask if this is Jump, do you think? Or I didn't no. get a good look at it. I didn't, I, I tried to read the, it was like, yeah, I can see what it said, but it wasn't Jump. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> focus, drawing back away from the comics, which I'm sure we could talk about forever. Um, um, so Mutsuko is actually a mole working for Otsuka. She's in a relationship with one of the gang members, Tanaka. And uh, Karata's office uh, is this interesting set. It's this uh, Greek, there's kind of like Greek or Roman looking paintings on the walls. Uh, but the colors in this case are very faded compared to other locations, so it looks really run down. Um, so we meet uh, a woman that Otsuka's gang identifies as being Tetsu's girlfriend. Her name is Chiharu, and she's a lounge singer. Um, we see her practicing in the nightclub before it opens, and uh, and she's singing the Tokyo Drifter theme. Um, and it looks like it has bright yellow walls at this point. Uh, what we're going to see is that it's like this whole club that she's in is, is just white everywhere, and it's uh, affected by the colors that you shine on it. Uh, but for the most part, it kind of looks like this bright yellow club. Um, and it's very striking when then Otsuka enters, and he's wearing this bright yellow jacket. They kind of clash in this really interesting way. Um, he roughs up her piano player, and we cut to his men kidnapping Chiharu in this crazy car. Uh, it's black with this like red and yellow checkers and stripe design on it. It's very distinct. Uh, not something that you'd think uh, somebody wanting to be, you know, on the DL would be driving around. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so uh, she's seemingly being taken hostage, but the driver is in fact Tetsu, and he swerves around, menacing Otsuka's gang and and presumably uh, rescuing Chiharu because we abruptly cut to a scene of them playing a shooting game together in an arcade. We don't actually see the resolution of the scene, <laughs> which is an interesting. Uh, choice. Um, yeah, that was one of the scenes where I was just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, so after this, after there's kind of like uh, this kidnapping turn date, uh, she uh, thinks that Tetsu is going to follow her to her place and he kind of coolly slips away instead. And I think this kind of perfectly describes their whole relationship. Um, Next, we see Otsuka's gang uh, duping the man who's selling uh, the building to Kurata, whose name is Yoshi, um, and they they convince him into thinking that Kurata has agreed to, uh, agreed to pay him in full, 
um, by impersonating Tetsu over the phone. And, uh, but instead, he's taken to Otsuka's club, which is the club manhole, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> which is a great name for a club. And so he enters Otsuka's office, uh, which is this big, empty green room uh, with nothing on the wall except for this like round liquor cabinet, uh, at least in this shot that you can see. And uh, the cabinet, uh, though, opens up, and it's actually a doorway that Otsuka's men come out of. It's uh, totally ridiculous. I don't know. This got a laugh out of me. I don't know about you guys. Okay, so this movie, if I could describe this movie in, like, one sentence, it would be, like, the live-action version of the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. comic <laughs> cover. Like, oh, do you know what I mean? Definitely lots of, like, 60s kind of mod stylings and stuff. Yeah, it's so 60s. Way. Like, this is the most 60s Japanese movie I've ever seen. Like, it, you can definitely tell what decade this movie was mm-hmm. made in, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I de- it, de- it definitely got a laugh out of me when the liquor cabinet opens up and Tatsu just kind of steps through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a character that I haven't introduced yet, but that's Tatsu the Viper. Uh, and it gets a little confusing that there's Tetsu and then his rival Tatsu. But... um uh, that definitely was another thing that kind of threw me for a loop. And I think that may be uh, semi-intentional to just to kind of add to the sur- surreality of everything. But uh, anyway, so Yoshi uh, is resists. He kind of figures out what's going on here and uh, resists Otsuka's uh, attempt to pay, but is kind of beaten up into accepting the payment. And uh, Otsuka calls Kurata to fill him in on the deal that's been made and uh, Tetsu rushes over to stop it, but before he can make it, they shoot and kill Yoshi. And then here is the hilarious part to me. Where he's uh, chasing them uh, through the office, and they step into this through this doorway, and he just falls through a trap door in the floor. And it's like, what is this place? There's like secret passages and trap doors. Like this is a nightclub, right? <laughs> um, and when he falls, the club music abruptly stops, which I think adds to the humor for me. Also, well. he just kind of like splats down there and then there's no longer a sense of urgency in the scene. They just kind of lower their bridge back and slowly saunter across. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Yeah, I get the impression it's maybe supposed to be a little deeper than it looks. So it, it maybe like was such a dramatic fall that he's, you know, knocked unconscious and definitely out of commission. But it totally looks like he could just kind of stand up and hop out of there. <laughs> um. So Otsuka, with, now with Tetsu out of the picture, heads over to Karata's office to finalize the plans by getting Karata's signature. Um, however, a gunfight breaks out, and uh, the secretary, Mutsuko, is shot in the crossfire. There's this great overhead shot of her dying and falling on the floor. Uh, it's very dramatic, uh, if maybe a little confusing. Uh, but um, it, then it moves to this amazing-looking scene uh, of her on the floor with these giant windows that... Uh, are, have a white wall behind them with this red light that's kind of like a red gradient uh, shown on them that kind of looks like they're filling up with blood <laughs> or Kool-Aid, as it may be. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and so Mutsuka's uh, lover, Tanaka, uh, is enraged by uh, her death, but Otsuka stops him from fighting. And uh, to put the pressure on Karata to sign, Otsuka calls the cops, threatening to pin the murder on him. And uh, just then Tetsu arrives. He's broken out of his... Uh, <laughs> prison at the club, uh, club manhole, and um, Tetsu agrees, uh, uh, or Tetsu greets the uh, one of Otsuka's men, uh, Tatsu the Viper, as we'd mentioned earlier, 
and uh, proceeds to basically save the day. Uh, there's this cool uh, stylized scene of uh, in front of those red windows again where Tanaka is grieving over Mutsuko and, but picks up a gun and Tetsu quickly turns around and shoots him. Uh, and as he does that, they turn pure white behind him. It has a lot of really great impact. But uh, this then leads to a sort of confusing scene where they suddenly cut to uh, what I didn't realize at first. They had the, What they do is they place Yoshi's body next to Mutsuko uh, and uh, the police are left wondering if this is a lover suicide or murder, but placed directly after a scene where uh, Tetsu shoots uh, Tanaka, it looks like that. I thought at first that was Tanaka's body. I don't know about you guys, but Ed, he's he. I, I guess he if just he shoots like, Tanaka or just shoots the gun out of his hand. That's the thing is he just shoots the gun out of his hand. But like when you shoot a guy and then quickly cut to a dead guy on the floor that gotcha. the camera is far away from that you can't really see his face, it was kind of like. I was like, oh, I guess that guy's dead. And and implying that they were lovers, you know, like uh, Mutsuko and Tanaka actually were. But uh, anyway, so the police are seeking out this gun as evidence. And um, Tatsu the Viper offers to take out Tetsu uh, as he's kind of the major thing standing in their way of totally crushing Karata. And Viper follows Tetsu to a junkyard where uh, Tetsu puts his gun, uh, the evidence, on the hood of his crazy taxi car and incinerates it. Um, there's this funny part <laughs> where Tetsu confronts Viper. He's standing behind him and he says, like, drop your gun. And then he says, turn around. I've got something for you. And what he's got is a fist. And he punches him in the face. Um, I thought that was a pretty funny uh, little exchange. And Tetsu then uh, says that he'd like to kill him, but he and his boss have gone legit, of course. And uh, he declares that he will take the fall for the murderers and uh, leave Karata blameless. Uh, Karata doesn't want to let Tetsu take this fall, but like they eventually agree to let him leave, and he thinks that without him around, less trouble will be attracted to Karata. Um, and so Tetsu becomes homeless Tetsu from Tokyo. Uh, Karata uh, arranges to have Tetsu stay with somebody else on the road here, and so he travels. Tetsu first, though, calls uh, his girlfriend Chiharu and, and can't bear to say goodbye to her, so he just leaves. And uh, she's devastated, of course, and sings a sad song from the nightclub. Um, she kind of like alternates between these two songs. She has uh, the the sad song and then also the Tokyo Drifter song, uh, which everybody uh, gets a little of. So uh, that particular song, the Tokyo Drifter song, mm-hmm. every single time it's sung, also I, I attribute this to the pace of the movie, but every single time that move, that song is sung, it always sounds like the movie's about to end. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely. it's like oh is this the end of the movie and i definitely couldn't tell like whenever because the, i think the movie moves kind of slow and uh and you know it's very typical for uh like a movie to end with with you know uh, like an enka song or something like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's exactly what it feels like like but like five different times in the movie it's like oh it's gonna end oh Sprinkle no, it throughout it's and it's the same song over and over again yeah it's yeah an interesting thing um, I do want to remark on this great set uh, of the nightclub again uh, at this point where she's singing the sad song she's up on the staircase uh, and where there's a door behind her and it's illuminated by yellow and purple lights and looks super good yeah um, it looks like uh, like in the 1960s and 70s when like you know you'd see like a variety show with the carpenters playing it would just be this stark this stark background right yeah. with just like this uh, with with white architecture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's very... such a weird, yeah, 
like a weird aesthetic, right? Like, like yeah, where are it the feels people? kind of like a play or something. It's very, very bare bones. Yes. Very, um, yeah. Interesting. Um, Super stark. Mm -hmm. um, so Tetsu travels to Northern Japan um, and he realizes that he's being followed and tries to give them the slip. But not only is he being followed by Otsuka's men, uh, but uh, the police are after him as well. And he's arrested uh, on some snowy railroad tracks. This is a great uh, environment for this sort of thing. It looks really great, I think. And um, and as he's being taken away by uh, the detective, he's about to be sniped by Viper uh, when other gang members who are friendly to Karata arrive, freeing Tetsu. Um, they want to recruit him to take down their rival gang. And he uh, he agrees, uh, drinking sake and making the agreement, you know. And then... Um, the. Uh... Going back to the train tracks, that was yet another of those very confusing scenes because all of a sudden the policeman comes out of nowhere and is trying to arrest him where police have not been a factor at all in the rest of the movie. And it's like, <laughs> who is this guy now? What is going on? Yeah, and yeah. They just drop it and move on. Yeah, there's this like brief uh, flash that like the police are investigating the murder of these two people and he's trying to hide the gun and stuff. And it seems like that could be a whole thread that you would be following, but it's just kind of barely being sprinkled throughout the thing. Um, so, so yeah, so he kind of aligns with this one gang and then the rival gang enlists Viper and the two gangs fight each other, but Viper isn't too concerned about this. Uh, he's really just looking for Tetsu. Uh, and then there's this great scene. I totally love this where Tetsu's walking along this like obvious set, uh, after these sort of like real, uh, snowy environments, we get this sort of like fake snow falling, uh, sculpted set, uh, where he's singing his theme and there's music behind him and everything. And so it's, it feels very separate from the real events of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then back in the, uh, you know, gang raid, the gang actually remarked that they hear the, him coming because they hear this song. So I love this sort of like mixing. Of yeah, I like two. that it's like diegetic. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think that they can also hear the strings and whatever too. But. <laughs> <laughs> so he busts in and takes them on. There's a firefight with people diving behind walls and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, the usual, he shoots out one of uh, the gangster's eyes. I think this is Tanaka. And um, Tetsu wanders off, but is followed by Viper. And uh, there's this interesting effect uh, where part of the frame is covered in shadow. I think this is literally just a shadow over the lens that they cast. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, I don't think it quite works as well as some of the other uh, interesting uh, visual effects in the movie. Uh, but this leads to a cool showdown on the train tracks again. Uh, as a train is coming, and Tetsu rushes Viper and dives on the tracks, shooting at him, but we don't actually see what happens here. Uh, this is another instance where we quickly cut away uh, and don't see what happens with Viper or this train that's coming that could possibly hit Tetsu, but we see Tetsu stumbling off uh, to his house and uh, presumably injured, and um, he's at home cleaning up when suddenly <laughs> Viper busts in, like, diving through the doorway, uh, shooting at him as if to sort of say like, hey, our scene wasn't over yet. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I love that. Uh, Viper is definitely injured. We see him bleeding from his hand. and uh, well, Viper before, gives He doesn't just bust in. He, he busts the door open and threatens him. Uh, it's like he's, he's wondering if Viper would actually shoot him in the back because he's standing at a wash basin like looking at the mirror. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, no, he would do it. <laughs> yeah, Tetsu puts a great 
amount of importance on like honor and loyalty and things like that that you can see uh, other characters don't necessarily uh, agree with. And um, Viper gives a little monologue here, kind of remarking on Tetsu's nickname, the Phoenix, uh, because like a Phoenix, uh, it, he seems impossible to kill. And, uh, and, and sure enough, Tetsu slips away um, and the gang can hear him singing in the distance. Again, really love that. And this is when we meet <laughs> my dude, Shooting Star Kenji. And uh, I love this guy. Uh, he used to be an Otsuka man, but now he is a lone wolf. And he beats up the gang aligned with Otsuka and is uh, being generally cool. Uh, and back at Tetsu's place, he spits some alcohol on Tetsu's wound and fixes him up. Uh, they discuss their feelings on being drifters. Again, kind of with this theme that we were just talking about. Like, Tetsu uh, doesn't like being a drifter because he, he, he puts a lot of importance on these alliances and, and loyalty and stuff. And... Uh, feels that it lacks honor, but Kenji seems to think that it suits him, even though we, I think, see a little bit of uh, melancholy in Kenji's eyes. And um, uh, that said, Kenji is working for this man named Umetani, who is Kurata's ally. And uh, Chiharu has traveled to, uh, to find Tetsu, and we get this brief scene of them seeing each other across train cars there on opposite trains, and uh, he, of course, sadly rejects her uh, hand and and leaves town, and she's stuck still pursuing him. So, onward, uh, we move to uh, Kyushu in southern Japan. This is a warm climate uh, with a lot of nightclubs, and Umetani uh, runs this Wild West saloon-themed joint. Uh, it's <laughs> really, I, I love uh, love it. It's not only Wild West saloon-themed, it's, uh, I think, because Kyushu is like a port area. There's a lot of like uh, foreigners uh, and military guys uh, hanging around too. Yeah, the and, specific town is uh, Sasebo, which has uh, a U.S. Navy base. Uh, um, okay. It wasn't until after I watched the movie that and went and looked at because uh, the the city in the north is Shonai mm-hmm. uh, that I went and looked how far apart Shonai and Sasebo is. It's like a two day trip to get between the two. So I did, yeah. I, I figured one was on the way to the other, it, but they're actually completely opposite directions. They're kind of like opposite ends of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. That, which is a cool thing that we get these kind of like, you get the snowy scene and then you get the sort of warmer uh, scene, even though it's mostly in this nightclub. Um, so Umetani welcomes Tetsu in and, and we learn that shooting star Kenji is there as well. Uh, Umetani informs, Tetsu that some troublemakers have arrived, including Viper, who now has a cool facial scar. Uh, it's pretty rough looking. And uh, Tetsu thinks that he should just leave town at this point, <laughs> continue drifting, and save everyone the trouble uh, of him being around. Uh, and just then, a cabaret uh, feather dancer who's being harassed by some guys in their underwear. There's this sort of Japanese, uh, I think, um, naval guys, I think. Uh, but they have their uniform on the top half, and, and underneath they just got fundoshi. <laughs> and they're they're bothering her, and a foreign military man uh, fights them back, and a big brawl follows. Um, oh, so good! Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, I I assume you guys had the same thought as me, and this definitely reminded me of Truck Yarrow. Um, yeah, absolutely. The same, yeah. A similar kind of like slapstick, and just like everybody being like, well, I'm here. I might as well hit somebody. Yeah. 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 She, you know, the feather dancer gets in the action. She, she punches a guy while also yeah. fawning over Tetsu. Cause you know what a man he is. <laughs> it reminded me of, uh, of the 
end of Blazing Saddles. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like more more so than Truck Yarrow, just because like literally everybody gets into this fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you got the cabaret. Yeah. Yeah. And and the sets being destroyed and everything. And I like uh, one of the gags I like is where there's this lineup of ladies and they're marching out all these military guys by chanting like one, two, one, two. And the guys are uh, march in a line and then, you know, about face and then they all hit them on the heads with clubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like so I have sorry. I have I have such trouble trying to figure out like what genre I would classify this movie as. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think the studio did as well. <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh, it's almost like a it feels like a manga. Mm-hmm. Like well, you know, it, same roots. <laughs> yeah, um, like it so, takes itself seriously, but not seriously. Like it's mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, I I just I love that tone personally. Um, so after the brawl clears out, we're left with just our principal characters, including Viper, uh, to face off. Um. <clears throat> Viper shoots Tetsu in the back and thinks that he's finally got him uh, and he's lying on the ground uh, but casually starts whistling his theme and uh, you can tell that Viper is starting to get, really get rattled here uh, so much so that he ends up shooting himself in the head and that is a very shocking outcome but also I'd say darkly humorous um, in, in in tone as we were just saying it's a, it's a sort of like dark and gritty movie but uh, that, yeah, that was yeah. I was super shocked by that because the the names Tatsu and Tetsu being so similar and a lot of other scenes that had happened, it had been kind of framing the movie as them as being a rivalry between these two henchmen. And then just like, I, I guess like two thirds through the movie, Tatsu's story arc is done. He's like, I can't beat this guy. I'm out. Yeah. Um, and and we get this sort of interesting uh, conversation following it, where um, Kenji notes that it you know that it was very unfortunate for Viper that he was bound by duty uh, to you know kill Tetsu or kill himself basically, and mm-hmm. since he couldn't kill Tetsu, he kills himself, and then this this then gets back into this clash between uh, Kenji and Tetsu about um, you know the value of of these these things. Um, so Kenji and Umetani uh, wonder if Kurata can even be trusted, and we immediately shift to a scene of him betraying Tetsu. <laughs> um, you know, sure he he's he protests and he doesn't like it, but sure enough, he he ends up selling out Tetsu as a way of making peace with Otsuka. Um, the deal is made in this beautiful purple room at Otsuka's club, and um, Otsuka makes two more demands uh, in exchange for leasing Kurata's building for a high price. Uh, you know, s- sort of following up this, uh, um, what do you call it, real estate plotline that, I, you know, is honestly a little confusing and not not super important. Um, but the, the main sort of emotional aspect of this is that he also wants Chiharu, Tetsu's girlfriend. And Kurata doesn't like it, but agrees, uh, uh, you know, thinking that this will ultimately be for the greater good, uh, reducing the amount of damage that's been going on the, uh, lately. And... Um, so, uh, you know, from here we're taken to Chiharu's nightclub where she's singing uh, uh, her sad song and Tanaka arrives eye-patched and informs Chiharu mid-performance that Tetsu is dead. And uh, to drive the point home, he takes off his eye-patch and kind of like wiggles a gross eye wound at her. Yeah. And Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she's shocked by this and, and is finally uh, faints and... Um, 
uh, Kurata calls Umetani and asks him to kill Tetsu and uh, kind of prematurely tells Chiharu that, yes, in fact, Tetsu is dead. And um, back at Umetani's, uh, Tetsu is still defending his boss, uh, and he cannot believe uh, that what shooting star Kenji is telling him uh, that uh, what, what's going down. And shooting star smacks him around and pulls him out into the street where Umetani is waiting for him. And uh, Umetani's uh, firing at him with, with uh, a gun, and, and uh, Tetsu sees now that shooting star is right. And uh, he, he still can't really believe it uh, in his core, so he, he leaves to return to Tokyo and see for himself um, as Shooting Star uh, fends Umetani off. And uh, Umetani has uh, this opportunity to kill Tetsu, but holds back, and he and Shooting Star commiserate, uh, noting that Tetsu's a good guy, but when a guy like that gets mad, nothing will stop him. Yeah, I really like the resolution to that scene where... Uh, uh... Shooting star is like, come on, and and Umetani's like, yeah, my heart wasn't in, wasn't really in it. He's <laughs> he's a nice kid, and then yeah. they just like go back to doing whatever they were doing before without thinking about it. Yeah, I like to think that their story goes on, and you know, <laughs> yeah, um, and it also uh, though kind of feeds into this thing that the whole movie is kind of about is building up this Tetsu character to be really like such a mighty hero, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, watch out for him. Um, so back in Tokyo, we're in Chiharu's nightclub, and all the lights are off. So it's this like completely stark black. And Kurata and Otsuka are there dressed in black suits, so they really like kind of fade into it. Um, it looks really cool. Everything's black except for Chiharu's white clothes and the white piano. And then there's this uh, big sculpture that has a red light on it. Um, and again, kind of like talking about the sparse sets and stuff. That has this has a very um, sort of you know, surreal, abstract uh, look to it. Um, Otsuka is trying to make Chihara sing, but she refuses, and the piano player rushes in, and, and they threaten to kill him uh, if she won't sing. Uh, so he plays the melody of her sad song, and she sings in the darkness, and it's a really beautiful, uh, stark scene uh, here. But then uh, Tetsu arrives, uh, dressed in all white, coming down this white corridor that has this uh, pointed ceiling that really gives it a chapel look, you know. Yeah, it's very, like, European church architecture. Mm-hmm, for sure. Thing. And, you know, like, in Japan, a lot of times when they do the Western-style weddings, everyone dresses in white, like, the white suit and a white dress. So, like, her being in white and him in white, it's definitely, I think that's intentional to kind of, like, give it this wedding look. Um, so he opens the door, and light pours in, and now the white, cl- uh, the, the white club, <laughs> the nightclub is all white. Um and uh, then what follows is this crazy stylized gunfight uh, in this environment where, like, they're hiding behind these small pillars that obviously wouldn't actually protect them, and it feels very choreographed and stuff. Very, really interesting. Um, kind of hard to describe. Um, there's, like, a part where Tetsu throws his gun on the ground, uh, taking everyone by surprise, and they kind of eke out, being like, uh, is it safe to kill him now? And then he suddenly rushes and grabs the gun and shoots them all. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, it, it he makes a, a big deal every time he's in one of these shootouts that he his range is just under ten meters, so he's always judging things out by that distance, and he uh, throws his gun as a distraction so he can confuse them by being unarmed and then die for the gun and be within range to shoot them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I had I, that had slipped by me. Um, there's a part at this point where one of the guy's guns falls on the piano making it give this 
you know, bong sound of when you like slam your hand on a piano keys. And uh, the man reaches for his gun and Tetsu smashes his hand with the piano door, giving us a house moment. Uh, he's getting eaten by the <laughs> piano. <laughs> yeah, I had that. I had that in my notes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so Kirata orders Tetsu uh, that uh, he needs him dead. And uh, Tetsu feigns uh, uh, that he's going to throw his gun to Kirata, but catches the gun in midair and shoots Otsuka, uh, who's up on the stair- stairway. And if there was any kind of doubt that this is Otsuko, like when he dies and falls off the staircase, like the remaining lights come on. It's a very like symbolic thing. And um, Tetsu approaches uh, Karata and uh, crushes this wine glass in his hands. And uh, and it's a it's a it's a cool looking scene. You know, he's bleeding from his hands, and this is symbolizing them cutting their ties, like smashing the sake cup uh, in, in uh, yakuza tradition. And uh, from at this point, Tetsu embraces Chiharu, uh, which obviously bums out our piano player, who I think has a crush on her as well. Um, but he says, a drifter doesn't need a woman. And this makes Chiharu cry. And suddenly, Kurata slits his wrist, uh, producing a good old Japanese cinema blood spray. Uh, that that was just a, one, one element that we were missing, I think. <laughs> so we, yeah. we got it. And uh, Tetsu kind of looks at this with this like look that's just kind of like, ooh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chiharu shields her eyes, though. She's very upset. And uh, Tetsu uh, leaves Chiharu behind, exiting through the white hallway. And his theme plays one more time as we see shots of uh, Tokyo nightclub signage. And he drifts off into the night. And that is uh, the amazing film that is <laughs> Tokyo Drifter in all of its weird, uh, sometimes confusing glory. Um, yeah, a thing I wanted to mention about this uh regarding the budgets that I had mentioned uh, before we really get into conversations uh, about critiques and stuff is that uh, like, like I had mentioned, uh, Seijun Suzuki was having a lot of problems with his studio uh, over his uh, bizarre style. And so what they decided to do with this one was drastically cut his budget thinking, ah, this will keep him from doing any weird stuff. And what in fact that did is it meant that he couldn't afford to film a lot of scenes that would have uh, been kind of like connective tissue. And so a lot of scenes where he, I think I would guess he kind of thinks like, well, you can guess that in a shootout between a hero and a villain, the hero is going to be fine. Uh, He just kind of cuts away from that and we don't get that resolution. Uh, So that plus uh, the sets had to be simplified, uh, giving it that sort of uh, surreal abstract feel. And so this move by Nikatsu to cut his budget uh, really kind of turned against them <laughs> and created <laughs> yeah. one of his most artistic movies uh, ever, you know. Um, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And Which, um, uh, I definitely like where you cut corners because like my, my favorite jumping ahead just slightly, my favorite thing about the movie is probably all the sets because each one of them looks like an art installation and mm-hmm. just like the creative lengths he did to to push that budget uh were are impressive yeah yeah on that on that criterion interview um uh well, which i think is actually an interview with like a british tv station or something but like um suzuki also mentions that at this time nikatsu was releasing two movies a week and uh they gave That's the, insane. they gave everyone about a month to make each movie and so there was a week given to write the script and then 28 days to film and edit. The last few days were editing, so most of that was filming. And so, you know, 
uh, it's really remarkable that anything was created under that <laughs> that 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 way. But like the fact that there are a lot of these sort of lauded Nikatsu action films from that time period do somewhat like point to uh, the amazing things that artists can do under pressure. But um, I also you know think that it points out to a lot of this attitude towards like well we don't have enough money for this so you know screw it <laughs> we got to get this done you know type thing interesting um yeah um do we have anything else to say about the songs in particular there's there's kind of two main songs there's the Tokyo Drifter scene, uh theme which is sung by Tatsura Watari um this was not ever released as a single. I don't think this movie was really a big hit or anything. Um, <laughs> but um, it has later appeared on albums as covers by other artists. Um, that doesn't surprise me. It's pretty catchy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one thing that like really uh, perplexed me in the movie was I couldn't tell if when he sang it or whistled it if he was breaking the fourth wall or not because in some cases... Uh, nobody really reacts to it. Yeah. Um, I think and I thought that the was answer is all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, that was the thing that really got me. I, I couldn't, I, uh, I really couldn't tell what they were trying to go for there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess like, oh, well, somebody's got to be singing this song and it might as well be me. Yeah, there's, there's also the confusing scene of after Viper uh, catches him unaware and shoots him and he like, throws water in Viper or hot water in Viper's face and runs away. He's like stumbling, severely injured through the snow, but they, they make a point to note that he's still singing the song. Uh-huh. And then there's the transition from when he gets tripped and, uh, and, uh, Kenji shows up. And I was wondering, like, is Kenji singing the song to mess with these guys <laughs> now? Did he just pick it up that quick? Like, but yeah, the, the, like, I said earlier, it's really cool that it's diegetic to the scenes, but it gets real weird and confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other song, uh, Blue Knight in Akasaka, uh, it's a, a neat kind of crooning tune, but it just, her singing Blue Knight over and over again uh, with a pretty thick Japanese accent is just a little jarring to my ears. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's, I think the main theme is a little bit stronger than the Blue Knight song. Um, but um, it's nice that there was some variation and, and th- that that song definitely fits more of the sort of like sad uh, moments uh, giving her a, a song to sing uh, like that. Um, the rest of the music is also uh, really interesting though because you get a lot of like super jazzy brassy horns going on. Mm-hmm. Almost like a... Uh, like the we think of like Godfather soundtrack or modern gangster stuff with just kind of like wandering horns. Yeah. I'm curious uh, what you guys thought in general about this movie. It sounds like Alex, you were maybe not so hot on this. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it was. I <laughs> might have been just. Uh, I don't know. I. Hmm. I appreciated how whack, how weird it was. Um, I thought that it's brilliantly shot. Um, mm-hmm. some of my favorite shots in the movie I thought were very cool. Like they, they seemed like comic book panels. 
the setting or, or the the sets um, Scott mentioned they're really great. Um, they're easily the most interesting part of the movie for me. Uh, and God Tetsu, he reminded me a little of Rock, the Tezuka character. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just because he <laughs> wears sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's this really cool shot. I, I wrote this in my notes towards the beginning of the movie where it's just like a full-on shot of his sunglasses. And it's just a very, it seems like a very defining character trait. It seemed like a very all-over-the-place movie. And I think that's that's where it kind of lost me. Yeah. Um, it didn't, It for me, it didn't, it felt like it didn't know what it wanted to be. Or I don't know if that was intentional or not. Like it was, it was weird in the way. It was weird in a different way that I prefer my weird, yeah, a Japanese film. Mm-hmm. If that yeah. makes any sense. No, that, that totally makes sense. I think I think it's kind of hard to pinpoint what exactly is intentional, what is uh, choices made out of necessity, and what were maybe like something that you might say is actually more of a mistake. You know. Right, but uh, I will say this: if I watched it like maybe uh, one or two more times, I would probably lighten up on it. Mm-hmm. I definitely recommend if you <clears throat> have a moment, you know, uh, at a later date after you've given it some time, like now that you know what it is going into it, maybe mm-hmm. uh, checking it out again. Because um, my kind of first impression—and sorry, Scott, I'll get back <laughs> to, oh, no to your problem. general thoughts—but my my first impression. Uh, just to this point, was kind of like, that looked great. Uh, I, Of course, I was thinking about this podcast, and I was like, how am I going to recap that? Um, I'm confused on a lot of the sort of minutia of it. I got the general thrust of it, you know, basically, but uh, uh, I was finding myself kind of flustered a lot and like, oh, man, what am I going to do with this? And then, and then, again, sort of watching it after reading a little bit more about it and uh, watching it again uh, made me appreciate it a lot more. Um, what did you think in general, Scott? Uh, I loved it. Uh, I've got a lot of affection for kind of poorly plotted bad action movies to begin with. Mm. So a lot of the weakest parts of this film are things that I kind of already have affection for. Uh, and then uh, visually, it's just amazing. But on top of that, like you were talking about the tone earlier, where it's this kind of almost... A juvenile view of of yakuza machismo and stuff and then a little bit of like silliness in there as well um most of the yakuza stuff i've been exposed to has been more modern and and some v cinema stuff where it's all just like gross and gritty and dark mm-hmm. and this the closest thing that or the closest touchstone I had to this was actually the uh, the Yakuza series of video games, which also do a a good job of mixing up these themes of like Yakuza family and honor and betrayal, while also mm-hmm. having like a bunch of silly madcap stuff. And so <laughs> I I really enjoyed uh, pretty much every aspect of this, from the like weird nonsensical plot to the silly action scene where it's like people having shootouts next to one foot wide uh, cardboard pillars and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like I'm, I'm willing to, I don't just overlook that stuff. I'm, I'm kind of into it in its own way. So mm-hmm. I just love this. I'm really looking forward to, to looking into some of his other stuff, uh, which that was the thing when I was watching this, trying to figure out the intentionality. I haven't seen any other Seiju and Suzuki movies, 
So it's harder for me to tell, like, is this something that he does? Like, has, has he done things like this before? Yeah, I would definitely love to cover Branded to Kill at least. Um, because knowing that a movie, knowing that that's the movie that got him fired finally, but that it's also like <laughs> kind of come around to being uh, known as a classic. And, uh, and again, uh, it would be a good opportunity to talk about another very strange uh actor who's a kind of weird part of Japanese film history, Joshi Shido. That would be really great. <clears throat> I, I, I really love films from this time period. Um, what it reminded me of was a sort of stranger, dirtier version of a movie called The Rambling Guitarist, who's, that's from 1959, so just a few years prior to this. Um, that's part of a series, the Watari Dori series, uh, also from Nikatsu, um, that is uh, about a wandering guy who ends up uh, often mixed up in Yakuza business, but always sticks up for the honorable way of doing things. And uh, it also includes musical numbers. Uh, he's a guitarist, so he has his own sort of theme that he plays and stuff. And um, has similar plot device of him leaving behind a beautiful woman who's following after him. And um, there's a second Tokyo Drifter film that uh, Nikatsu made and gave to another director. And there's no doubt in my mind that like their intent in probably approving the script was like, oh, great, this sounds a lot like The Rambling Guitarist, which is a big hit for us. Um, if I if I could compare that to anything, it's kind of like an old Elvis movie or something. Um, uh, I, thought the, uh, I thought the second Tokyo Drifter movie was uh, an entirely different studio as well. I could be wrong. Um, Oh, I don't know. Um, for some reason, I, I mean, I just assumed it was Nikatsu, but um, the fact that there's only one more of them like made me think that... Um, I'm actually going to look that up real quick because I'm, that's the thing that I'm interested in now. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I don't know. So I think, I think in general, it, it seemed like uh, Nikatsu approving the script to make into um, uh, a movie and handing it off you know, to make it sort of... Uh, similar to the rambling guitarist makes you think that they were hoping for another hit like that. And it gives me that feel. And so that's the thing I love. Um, it'd be interesting to watch that with you guys. Cause that's a more sort of straightforward movie, a lot less like surreal, but it does have these sort of musical elements and stuff. Um, but what Se- Seijin Suzuki brings is his own personal surreal touch. And we get this and, and, and making it a little grittier and, and it ends up pretty grisly there at the end. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, and, uh, regardless of like <laughs> who was involved, but w- if with that sequel without, um, um, Suzuki's touch, like it's probably not that interesting. It's probably just kind of a boilerplate story. And, and obviously, uh, you know, uh, audiences didn't really take to it either because it didn't become a big, uh, sprawling series. But, um, yeah, overall I like, uh, this movie, uh, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I can kind of get more into the production of it rather than the story itself, you know, uh, really kind of enjoying, um, the way it looks for sure. Um, and so Scott, you were saying, uh, that your favorite part of the film was the sets. Um, do, do you have anything else that you wanted to say about that in particular? Um, just like I said, the really sparse design of the club, I was kind of blown away when it first showed up that it was so, I was like, this looks super fake, but then they use it throughout the entire film, returning there to such great effect. 
to where the, it the first time you see it, like I said, I was like, this lo- this looks like a fake set. Mm-hmm. But the more they use it and the more they show you of it, even though it's this weird sparse space, it gives it it, it lends it much greater intentionality uh, and and makes it feel like, oh, this is just like it doesn't feel fake anymore. It just feels like this weird avant garde 60s club. Yeah. Um, the, my, my favorite, uh, set in the movie though, is probably the, the one shot where they're negotiating the betrayal, uh, they're up on the stage in the club, uh, in the, the manhole club, uh, and it's framed, I guess, from somebody who is not on the stage. It's real low in comparison to everybody else mm-hmm. just sitting there and the like weird colors and, uh, the weird chairs and like one of them is sitting on a a bunch of pipes. It looks like yeah. <laughs> just the design of that scene is so surreal and the colors are so vibrant and interesting. Like I just love the way that looks. Yeah. Um, how about you, Alex? Did you have a favorite part of the film? Uh, yeah, I loved both brawls really like uh, the one at the Western saloon I thought was really cool. But the one that I really liked was um, the one that was like in the castle. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That one, uh, I don't know. I, it just felt like uh, I, both of those were like just super fun to watch, and mm-hmm. I thought that they were done really well. Um, and I kind of wish that the movie had a little more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we even get a little flavor of like Chambara Samurai movie because all the Yakuza in in the northern in uh, the name of town in the northern town are all armed with uh, with katanas. Yeah, wearing traditional yeah. clothes and stuff. Which I think is supposed to sort of imply that they're a little more podunk, you know, um, and yeah. outmatched by these guys with, you know, gasp guns. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was actually, uh, you know, as much as my big takeaway from the film is probably the awesome sets and, and strange but compelling editing style. And I think, yeah, speaking of the brawls, uh, I think the thing that makes them work uh, is that Suzuki seems to have a very frenetic way of pacing things, which sometimes works against it maybe um but um yeah my uh, oh, oh uh well, yeah one more thing about the castle brawl i thought that was really cool um was uh his camera work like for the beginning of that it reminded me of um that scene in old boy the hallway scene the infamous one oh yeah uh so it, it looks like side scrolly mm. oh yeah, uh, yeah so I, yeah, I, I, it's stuff like that, that like really gets me going, like mm-hmm. stuff you don't normally see in, in just in any movie. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. What I was going to say, my favorite part uh, of the movie, I think is actually this whole sequence in, uh, of Tetsu being in Northern Japan as well. Um, I really like the snowy landscape as a setting. Um, it looks very dramatic. Um, especially when a lot of the movie, uh, has these sort of bright colors to have, um, this sort of um, big white areas that are also sort of organic looking. Um, the showdown on the train tracks uh, was really cool. Um, it reminds me of actually a scene from Abishi Prison, which is a prison breakout movie from 1965 uh, that was very popular. So it's possible that um, that was um, part of the inspiration for that. Um, and if this then led to two of my biggest laugh uh, laughs in the films, uh, um, uh, in this film, I should say, um, 
And that's the point, the parts I mentioned where Viper pops into Tetsu's house and we get that sort of, Hey, we're not done with my scene moment. Uh, makes me laugh. And, um, also the part where they can hear Tetsu singing his own theme. And, uh, both of those give me sort of a fun sort of meta moment to, to laugh at, which I mm -hmm. uh, appreciate. Uh, before we move on, I wanted to give a, a special mention to uh, shooting star Kenji. Uh, Joey, you you seemed really stoked once he showed up. Mm -hmm. I, I know I liked him a lot. Of, I, I like that character archetype of kind of like the wizened mentor, but I love that he shows up and just immediately starts kicking everybody's ass and giving exposition. <laughs> I used to be, I used to work for your boss. I'm not one of you guys anymore. And just like giving his whole life story while he's kicking everybody's butt. It's just real out of nowhere, but, but great. Yeah. He's great. I really liked him. Like um, in one of the, in some like arrow supplemental material um, where they're talking about these, uh, diamond guys um that it's it's said that like um that actor um uh, what is it Nitani? Hideaki Nitani. yeah Nitani is dump like, truck Nitani. like yeah dump <laughs> the dump, dump guy dump, you know dump the guy. dump guy um <laughs> is, it maybe doesn't quite stand out uh, as well as much as like uh Joshi Shido who has like crazy charisma and a, a really weird looking face and Akira Kobayashi who again of exudes this charisma and has a sort of more traditional kind of pretty boy face um and so kind of doesn't maybe uh make as much of a long-standing cultural impact as those guys uh but like he definitely stands his own and, and stands out in this movie as being like a cool dude that i was uh really into definitely you know favorite character territory <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd, i i still don't get the nickname but he definitely does have this kind of like warm charisma to him i think i think he's kind of squarish you know has this kind of square jaw and he's he's very kind of like barrel chested so i think he's just kind of like strong and tough like a dump just truck. solid yeah you know? yeah <laughs> um so any any more thoughts on tokyo drifter before we wrap it up nope sounds like we we got it so yeah. uh scott what are we going to be talking about next month uh, next month, we will be talking about Shinobu Yaguchi's Wood Job. Uh, Yaguchi's probably better known for the movies Water Boys and Swing Girls. But uh, this is a more recent film about a city boy going to get a job in as a uh, uh, cutting down trees in the forest. And I'm really excited to watch it. Yeah. Uh, a thing that's cool about this is this is our first listener recommendation. Um, sent Ooh. in by Jason Rainey. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't think any of us really know much about it other than it's kind of like a modern film and it, it looks interesting and fun. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, same. Um, so Scott, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at Vriska chat on Twitter, V R I S K A C H A T. Uh, apologies to anybody that was following me through the evolution fighting game tournament. Uh, <laughs> I got a little spammy there, but that's over now. Uh, but yeah, hit me up on there. I'm not too active anywhere else at the moment. But uh, yeah. All right. How about you, Alex? Uh, well, you can find me on uh, on Twitter and uh, Instagram and other various forms of social media at dude exclamation, all one word. Uh, you can sometimes hear me on the One Piece podcast. Not so much these days. 
just because I'm uh, I'm busy with other uh, things outside of podcasting. Uh, but if you're listening to this and it's before August, uh, you can find me at the uh, Japanese anime convention Otakon, uh, now in Washington, D.C., uh, the weekend of August 11th. Uh, you can find me there doing both Super Art Fight and uh, the One Piece podcast panel. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I can be found on Twitter, Tumblr, Joey Weiser, um, at Joey Weiser on Twitter, joeyweiser.tumblr.com, where I talk about uh, my Twitter is all kind of like fun stuff with a little bit of professional stuff, and Tumblr is all professional, talking about my graphic novel series, Merman, and other comic projects I've got. Um, uh, coming up in August is a comic by Rich Tommaso called Spy Seal, and the first issue is coming out, and I'll have a backup story in that, uh, which he specifically asked me to do a ninja story, and without giving too much away, um, Spy Seal is kind of set in the 60s, 60s, 70s spy theme, so I decided to kind of draw on my uh, love of uh, Japanese movies from that time period, and a lot of that goes into my story uh, about a little ninja owl, uh, Ninja Fukuro, and um, the podcast itself also has stuff you can follow. There's uh, Twitter, Toho Yara Twitter on Twitter, where like we talk about um, uh, upcoming uh, English releases of Japanese movies, some stuff about what's coming out new in Japan. Uh, there's been a lot. Um, the New York City's Japan Society has been doing a lot of screenings of uh, Japanese movies. I've got this film fest going on. So um, I've been uh, retweeting stuff about that, too. And, and also just uh, information about our upcoming episodes and stuff. And then also uh, like us on Facebook, uh, where you can like and comment uh, on our posts about uh, upcoming episodes and episodes that we just dropped, and email us, uh, tohoyaro at gmail.com. We're uh, happy to address uh, any questions or comments uh, either here on the show or in response via social media, and uh, always looking for recommendations. As, as we'd mentioned uh, just a moment ago, uh, we're moving into uh, covering some uh, listener recommendations in the second half of the year, and we're going to continue to do so. Um, uh, beyond, you know, um, and, um, Hey, how also about a positive rating on iTunes slash Apple podcasts? Um, we've got one review up so far and some, some more would be really great, uh, to kind of help uh, boost the podcast and also just let us know what you like about it. Yep. And please tell your friends. Yeah. Feedback helps, uh, writing reviews, liking on, on iTunes and the Apple podcasting app, uh, helps other people find us. And we want more listeners. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now we've got uh, about a year, a little over a year's worth of podcasts to dig through. So if you know somebody likes a particular movie we covered or something like that, you can point it their way. But uh, until then, uh, let's see. Uh, we'll see you next month uh, with Wood Job. Wood <laughs> Job.